Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. When Israel agreed to the covenant between them and God, called the Mosaic Covenant, prior to the ascension of Moses to Mount Sinai, do you remember what they said to God? God said, You have seen what I have done to the Egyptians. Now if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then I will, I will bless you. And then in chapter 19, they respond by saying, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Later, after Moses told them what the covenant entailed, they reaffirmed this same covenant by saying in chapter 24, verses 3 and 7, they say it two times, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And their commitment to the covenant was seen in their generous giving toward the supplies of the tabernacle as we saw last week. In order for this tabernacle to be set up as God wanted it, it was going to require a lot of resources. And so they voluntarily gave of their gifts to the the tabernacle, to the construction of the tabernacle. But now Moses is up on the mountain receiving the more detailed covenant from God. And while he is up there, they quickly forget this covenant that they had made. And as we'll see today, they craft a graven image which was in direct violation of the second command. And as a result, they would would need to be restored to repentance and would need proper mediation in order to have their relationship with God restored. So we're going to cover this morning chapters 32 through 34, but I want to read just the first ten verses of that section. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. 
These three chapters teach us that those who rebel against God's covenant must be restored. Those who rebel against God's covenant must be restored. In chapter 32, verses 1-6, through we see the rebellion of Israel against God's covenant. We are prone to rebellion, much like Israel, when our societal background is idolatrous. These people grew up in an idolatrous land, Egypt. And while God had repeatedly told them to stay away from idols, they weren't ready to do so. We are prone to rebellion against God when our societal background is idolatrous. We are also prone to rebellion against God when our leadership is poor or lacking. Verses 2-6. through six, When our leadership is poor or lacking. This is probably the first time, if you think about it, since the time of the Exodus, the very first time that Moses had left them, that he was gone for longer than one day. Remember how long he was on the mountain? Forty days and forty nights. Moses had been gone a long time and they seem to think that he is not coming back. Look at at verse uh, 1. At the end of the verse it says, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Where is he? Did he leave us? Moses didn't know how long he was going to be gone. Neither did the people. So Moses is gone for all this time and it's like, yeah, we're getting manna from God, but our leader's gone. He, he abandoned us. We're prone to rebellion against God when our leadership is poor or lacking. When I say, I don't think Moses was poor as a leader here. What I'm saying is that he is missing. And it's not any fault of his own, but the point is, is Aaron didn't really fill the shoes of Moses very well, did he? He actually crafted the idol for them. Thirdly, we are prone to rebellion against God when we fail to live by faith. When we fail to live by faith. As Christians, you recognize that you have not seen God. You have not seen Jesus. You cannot see the Holy Spirit. You have not witnessed the signs and miracles of the apostles. And so all that you have to go on with regard to your faith is what you've heard, what you've read. Thousands of years of writing has been left for you. And so as Christians, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Walking by faith is difficult, isn't it? It requires our confidence in God's existence and in God's goodness that He is, Hebrews 11 says, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That God exists and that He is good. But when our faith is lacking, when we want to live by sight, we tend to desire something that we can see. And so we craft things of this world into our objects of worship. And this is what Israel is doing. They couldn't see God. They couldn't see Him. Now their leader's gone, Moses. And so they try to craft a God of their own making so that they can 
walk by sight. We will walk by sight one day. It's not wrong to desire that. But that won't be until the next life. In this life, we walk by faith. Rebellion against God's covenant. The next main point that we see is that rebellion against God's covenant demands mediation and repentance. Rebellion against God's covenant demands mediation and repentance. Chapter 32, verse 7 through the end of chapter 33. When Israel rebels against God's covenant, when we rebel against God's covenant, we need to be restored to God. And if we're going to have restoration, we need proper mediation, someone standing between us and God, and we need proper repentance. And this is what Israel needed as well. In verse 7, we see that rebellion against God's covenant is detrimental to ourselves. Notice verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people. God saying to Moses, Your people that you brought up out of Egypt. What's going on here? The people have flagrantly violated the covenant of God. They have done precisely what God had told them not to do to make a graven image. And what does God call them? Not my people anymore. What does He call them? Your people, Moses. It's like the parent who says, you know, your son did this. Okay, or your daughter did this. And like, wait, my daughter now? God is saying, listen, that covenant is over. They broke the covenant. This was not a one-sided covenant in that God was saying, I'll do it no matter what they do. That's not this kind of covenant. Now, God did make those kinds of covenants, like with Abraham, but not this one. And with David, He did the same thing. But with this one, it's a two-sided covenant that if any one of the parties broke their end of the deal, the covenant was off. And so God says, Moses, go back down to your people. You know the ones that you brought out of Egypt? Go back down to them. And the reason it's detrimental to ourselves is because Our rebellion is offensive to God, verses 8-10. through Our rebellion is offensive to God. Israel had violated the second command, do not make any graven image. And here is another evidence that Israel had broken its covenant with God. Notice God doesn't see them as, uh, see this act that they've done as something that can just be swept under the rug. Notice what He calls it in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen, notice He doesn't say my people again, I have seen this people and behold, They are an obstinate people. They are stubborn, stiff-necked, defiant. The reason our rebellion is, is so bad is because it's offensive to God. And God cannot leave rebellion unpunished. Notice verse 10. God proposes three solutions. Now then, here's the first, let me alone. And the second is that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then third, I will make you a great nation. Here God is, I believe, proposing what He's going to do if Moses doesn't intervene. Now we recognize that God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what Moses was going to do. Here, he offers a proposal. This is what's going to happen 
And we know from the rest of the story, if Moses doesn't intervene, because these things don't happen. God says, leave me alone. Let my anger burn against them. I'm going to wipe them out completely, and I'm going to start back over with you, Moses. I'm going to start back over with you. Because rebellion against the covenant is rebellion against God, restoration can only come through proper mediation and repentance. And that's where Moses comes in. Here in verses 11 through 14, we have the first evidence of mediation by Moses. Mediation by Moses. Moses intercedes for the people, and here he prays to God, essentially, talks to God, and offers three arguments for why God should withhold his destruction of Israel. Remember what God proposed? Leave me alone. Let my anger burn. I'm going to destroy them, and I'll start a new nation with you. And Moses says, here's why you shouldn't do that. First, verse 11. O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Here's Moses' first argument. Destroying Israel negates the great deliverance of God. That is, the great deliverance from Egypt. All that work that you've done before, God, and all the nations and Israel had seen it, if you destroy them, That becomes a waste. Second argument that Moses makes is in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent? He brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth. Then he goes on to say, turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. The second argument he gives is destroying Israel will give Egypt an opportunity to boast. You really want the enemies to say, well, what kind of God is that? He delivered them out of Egypt in order to destroy them himself? How is that going to affect the glory that's due your name, Moses says? And then thirdly, his third argument is in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. So the third one is, destroying Israel negates your promises to Israel's fathers. God, if you're going to follow through on the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you need to keep these people alive. You need to follow through on your promises. Now, what I want you to notice about this is that Moses' three arguments are not based on his own personal desires. This is why I think you should do it. This this would help me. This will make my image look better. No, he's saying, God, I'm concerned about your image. If you destroy them now, you're going to waste what happened in Egypt. If you destroy them now, Egypt will boast. If you destroy them now, how are you going to follow through on your promise to the forefathers? Right? Moses is concerned about whom? Not himself, but but God and His glory. And notice what God does in verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Friends, prayer works. God responds to the prayers of his people. Why did God change his mind? Why did he relent? Was it that he didn't see things clearly until Moses brought them up? Oh, no, I didn't think about that. 
Of course God saw everything. Of course He knew what the, the ramifications were going to be if He destroyed Israel. But when the Bible tells us that God changed His mind or that He relented, it simply shows us that God is changing in the way that He deals with us. Because if we think about it in the big picture, God does not change. If He did, then we would have an imperfect God. Think about it. If God could change for the better, what does that suggest about the God we have right now? That He's not the best that He possibly could be. That He needs some improvement. If God could change for the worst, what does that say about the future God that we're going to serve? It tells us that He is potentially evil. That He could end up being completely evil if He could change for the worst. But God does not change. He, like Jesus in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the only thing that changes when it comes to God is the way that He deals with us. As we change, He deals with the way that, that we live. He dealt with Adam in a different way that He dealt with Abraham, that He dealt with Moses, than He dealt with um, Malachi, that He dealt with the apostles, that He, dealt, that he deals with us. And that's, that's the whole idea of, of God working in various what we call dispensations. That He changes in the way that He deals with people, but that doesn't mean that God is a changing God. He is immutable, unchanging. You see, God knew exactly what He was going to do long before Moses made His plea and long before Israel even sinned. God knew what He was going to do with Israel. But from our perspective, it seems as if God is changing His mind. And I believe that the reason that Moses records it like this is that he's making a point for the benefit of us. He wants us to see that the way things change in the world is through the intercession of His people. Do you want to see things change in the world in, or in your world? Then pray to God. Because God changes things on the basis of His people who come to Him. Now, it's not that God's convinced by our arguments. Oh, I never thought about that before. Thanks for bringing that up. Now that I think about it that way, I'm going to do this. That's not the way it is at all. But rather, God is more convinced with our relationship than He is about our arguments. I think that we ought to come to God on the basis of biblical arguments. In other words, speak God's Word back to Him and say, God, this is why you ought to do this. I think that is completely biblical. But the reason that God answers is not because your arguments are are foolproof. The reason that God responds to you is because of who you are. God responds to you the way that a father would respond with favor to his four-year-old daughter. When a four-year-old daughter comes to her father, is the father convinced based on the arguments that the four-year-old gives? Like, he had never thought of those ideas before. He had never thought of it in that way before. No, why does he respond to her? Because of who she is. Because he loves her. And he wants to give her what she wants. What she desires. What is good for her. It's not the basis of her arguments. And so, we can't think when we come before God, I just need to explain something to Him. He needs to get this. No, we come to Him because we are His loving children. 
the children whom He loves. And so He wants to say, yes! But we, most of the time, many times I should say, we do not ask. The way change happens in this world and in your world is through prayer. God wants to answer you, but you need to ask. And the main thing that we should see here is that God continues to be their God. That He doesn't... Okay, here's the threat or the the proposal. Moses, if you don't intervene, I'm going to destroy them and start a new nation. Moses says, don't do that, God. And God says, alright, I'm not going to do that. God decides not to destroy them. However, God's changing of His mind does not mean that Israel is, is exempt from the consequences. And that's what we see in chapter 32, verses 15 through 35, the consequences of Israel's rebellion. Here, Moses heads down the mountain. And do you remember who was waiting for them? His assistant was Joshua. Right? Joshua went up with them most of the way, and then he had to stop, and Moses went up another probably seven days before he finally got to the summit of the mountain. And there he met God. He was enveloped in the cloud of God's glory. And so it probably took several days for Moses to get back down to where Joshua was and then several more days to get to the base of the mountain. And as they're coming down, they hear the noise of war. Uh, They head down the mountain and then in verse 17, when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. Okay, Moses knows what's going on because Moses had already been told what's going on down at the base of the mountain. Joshua doesn't know. But he hears something that sounds like war. Roar, uh, like war. It's, it's the noise of an uproar. It's not the sound of, of, uh, of a... Of a um, just like a, a lot of commotion, but rather it's the sound of, uh, that would be made at the, at the victory, the uproar that would come. And I think it's because Israel has now seen this crafted idol and they are just taking great joy in the fact that they have something that can now be seen. That this idol met their expectations and their desires and they erupted with pleasure into Joshua's ears it sounded like the victory of a battle. In verses 19 and 20, Moses portrays the anger of God. And he does it by smashing the stone tem- tablets. What were on the stone tablets? It was the law of God. It was a summary of the law of God. Apparently there was the Ten Commandments on one side written by God and the Ten Commandments on the other side written by Moses. It was a copy of the law. And, and so Moses takes this law this is further proof, by the way, that God is breaking or that Israel had broken the covenant with God because he's saying, listen, these are no good. Verse 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and his anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire. Moses portrays the anger of God. Don't think that this is an impulsive move on the part of Moses that he's like, I can't believe you guys did this. This is the first time I've thought about this. No, remember, he knows about this probably for days because it takes a long time to get down the mountain. 
He knows what's going on. Instead, this is not an impulsive move, but rather it's a calculated move. He's thinking, I believe, the whole time down the base of the mountain, I'm going to destroy these tablets right in front of them so that they know how serious this act of sin is. This act of idolatry, this act of rebellion is. It's a picture of what had taken place. That they had broken the covenant with God. And if they were going to be restored to God's graces, do you remember when there was a covenant between the, the suzerain and the vassal, the, the higher king and the lower group of people, the higher king, he would, he would agree to provide protection and blessing and, and, and he would care for them. And the lower people, the people who didn't have as much, would agree to submission, obedience, and they would also pay their tributes to the, to the king, the higher king. And what's happening now is this suzerain vassal treaty has now been broken because the people have defied the covenant of God. Moses breaks the tablets to show that it's defied, that, that they have rebelled against God and that the covenant is over. And if they're going to be restored and receive that protection and blessing that the suzerain offers... They're going to need mediation and repentance. So Moses wants to make that clear. Notice verse 20, what he does with the idol. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire. You might be thinking, wait a second, this is a calf of gold? How do you burn a calf of gold with fire and then ground it into powder? Well, think about it like the objects within the tabernacle. What were they made of? They were covered in gold, but what were they made of? Acacia wood, right? So that would burn and you could grind, grind that down into little powder. And notice what he does with it at the end of verse 20. And he scattered it over the surface, surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Now, I don't think that he had them line up one by one, put it in their canteens and say, here's this desecrated water, drink it. I think what happened is he ground it into powder and then spread it over the water, their water supply... And then over the course of time, eventually this water would be drunk by them and they would eventually expel that desecrated water from their body showing, God, showing, showing them what God really thought about idols. Right? They are worthless. In verses 21 through 24, Moses talks to Aaron and, and I think he gives him the benefit of the doubt. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people go to you? that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. He says, My Lord. He's talking about Moses, his leader. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We don't know where he went. He's gone. Verse 24, Aaron says, I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Well, it's not really the full story, right? He's modifying a little bit or embellishing it a little bit. Aaron passes the blame to the people. It's, it's these people who are rebellious. They didn't know what was going on with you. And they said, hey, you know, what are we going to do? And so they bring all this gold to me and I threw it in the fire. And you know what came out? A calf. It was amazing. He speaks as if the idol took shape of its own and Moses doesn't seem to condemn him. But what he does do, remember, 
rebellion requires that 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 sin be paid for, that there are consequences to their sin. Even if there is, and by the way, there is going to be restoration to the covenant, but there are going to be consequences to the sin as well. And we see that in verses 25 through 29. Moses calls for the Levites to come. And he wants to see if they have given their re-allegiance to God. Verse 25, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did, as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. So Moses calls for re-consecration. Are you going to set yourselves apart to God again? And then the Levites come over. Apparently they were the only ones there because he says, now you go through the camp and slaughter all the people who have rebelled against God. Now that's what it sounds like, that he's just saying, just just kill them all. But notice how many people die in verse 28. How many people? 3,000. Okay, does that mean that only 3,000 took part in crafting the idol? I don't think so. I don't think that can be true because Aaron didn't get killed, right? And do you remember the sound that they heard when they were coming down the mountain? It didn't sound like a little group of people. It sounded like a, a whole war was breaking out or, or the victory cry was, was being sounded. Most likely, I think the job of the Levites was to come around to Moses. Now, grab your sword. Take it with you. Now, go. Go to each tent, one by one. You know how it says, like, from one side to the other, back and forth, from gate to gate. Go to every single Israelite there there is. And here's what I want you to do. Find out which Israelites are not willing to repent. I think this was a corporate sin. Now, there may have been some who never took part in the idolatry, but it sounds to me in chapter 32 like they all took part in it. Like they were all a part of this. And so now I think what's happening is Moses is saying, now go out and see who will repent. The ones who will repent, don't do anything to them. But the ones who won't repent, kill them. And that's why you only have 3,000 who die. The other 1.99 million people still live. Because they repented. If we're going to be restored to God, it requires proper repentance. But it also requires a proper mediation. It's not enough for us to repent. We need someone who can stand in our place and speak on our behalf and and provide atonement for our sins. This is where we see Moses come back into play in verses 30 through 34. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. 
sounds like we were talking about this morning with the Apostle Paul. Hey, take my eternal life for the sake of these people. Let them live. Allow me to suffer in hell forever. Blot me out of your book. Verse 33, The Lord said, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. So the consequences of their sin is that God is going to punish them for their sin. And we're going to see how that, how that takes place. Actually, God does agree to some partial restoration in verses 1 through 6. But it's amazing what He suggests that He will do. Notice verse 2. Chapter 33, verse 2, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey for, or I think probably a better word would be, but I'm not going with you because you're an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. Here's the partial restoration. God's saying, listen, Remember what Moses, you asked of me, Moses, that I don't destroy them? Well, I'm not going to destroy them. But I'm not entering back into a covenant with them. Send them on their way. You guys go up. Moses, you lead them. You guys go to the land flowing with milk and honey, which was what? The promised land, Canaan. You go. But I'm not going with you. Because those people are too obstinate. And I might destroy them along the way. Israel recognizes what they had done. They recognized the weight of their sin. Yes, they had paid for the consequences of their sin by losing these who had rebelled, but they've done something greater. They've actually harmed a relationship that they had with the Almighty God. Notice what they do in verse 4. When the people heard this, the sad word. They went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Israel here, I think, gives a token of their repentance, of their genuine repentance. Not just, you know, we have sinned. We want to do what's right. Now they're saying, listen, we're taking off all of this, these ornaments that we would normally wear and we're putting on kind of mourning clothes, funeral clothes. Because we want to show God how serious we see our flagrant idolatry. God says, put on those clothes and then let me see what I'll do with you. But I'm not going with you. Some scholars believe that the end of verse 6 means that they wore those funeral clothes all the way through the wilderness. Okay, For them, it was sackcloth and ashes, so don't think they're walking through with suit and tie and a really nice dress or something. Okay, But, but sackcloth and ashes. No ornamentary. No, no necklaces. No earrings. All that stuff was put away because they were showing how serious they were about their rebellion against God, that they had turned from that. That's why it says, from Mount Horeb onward. From that day on, they didn't wear anything but those clothes. 
Well, Moses intercedes again in chapter 33, verses 7 through 16. He's not done interceding for Israel. He is an amazing leader. He recognizes that although God was not going to kill them, as he first proposed, these people were in great danger if they did not have God's special presence with them along the way. Look at verse 3 again. He says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up in your midst, because you're an obstinate people. So in verses 7 through 16, Moses goes to this temporary meeting place. It's, remember, the tabernacle has not been constructed and set up, so it can't be used at this point to meet with God. So there is apparently some temporary meeting place outside the camp of Israel where Moses would go. And there he talks with God. And his argument to God this time was that even though they would not be struck by the hand of God, his abandonment of them would make them as good as dead. Moses went to the tent in verse 8. The people all stood up in his presence, recognizing that he is their leader again. Verse 9, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance. The Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses, I think, argues on the basis of God's glory. God, you, your glory must be seen in these people and you cannot just leave us alone. If you leave us alone, we certainly will die. Well, God, God agrees to restore them in verses 17 through 23. God agrees to restore them. Moses makes his argument here that the nation is his people and that he must be with them. Notice why God responds to Moses. Verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for your arguments have found favor in my sight. Is that what it says? No, it says, For you, Moses, you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. This underscores what I was saying earlier. The reason God wants to respond to your prayers is not because of your good arguments. It's because of your relationship with Him. Because He loves you. When you come to Him, He responds to you because He knows you by name. And Moses said in verse 18, I pray, show, you my, show me your glory. And this is this event where God allows His glory to pass by Moses and He covers Moses' face so that he is not destroyed because no one can see God in His unshielded glory and still live. So He covers Moses' face until God passes by and Moses is able to see kind of the back end of God, of His glory. And I think this is important to tying all of three of these chapters together. They have broken the covenant. Moses has mediated on their behalf. They have repented. And now God says, here's a symbol, Moses, that I'm going to be with you. And I'm not going to abandon you. Let me show you my presence. Let me show you who I am. 
He gives Moses an indication of who he is. And then in chapter 34, we see proper mediation and repentance result in restoration. So we have rebellion, 32, 1 through 6. We have mediation and repentance, chapter 32, verse 7, to the end of chapter 33. And then chapter 34, here's the restoration. Remember those, do you remember those tablets that were broken, symbolizing that the covenant was over? Now they're going to be reinstated. In verses 1 through 10, God desires a relationship through covenant. Remember in verse thir- in 33.3, I'm not going with you. Even though I won't destroy you, I'm not going with you. But here in chapter 34, God says, even though you breached my covenant, notice verse 10, then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which, you, you, which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. God says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be with you. You're going to see my works. The people around you are going to see my work. But recognize that this covenant is two-sided, so you need to do something as well. And that means I demand exclusivity, verses 11 through 17. Make sure, verse 11, that you don't buy into the gods, the false gods of the Canaanites. Don't even stick or let them stay around. You need to destroy all of them. That is, the people, because they will encourage you to worship these false, false gods. Verse 13, verse 12, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Verse 13, But rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asherim, and you shall not worship any other god. Verse 15, Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you may take some of their daughters for your sons. And then he finishes by saying, verse 17, you shall make for yourself no molten gods. Hey, don't get involved with those people or their gods because God desires, or I should say God demands exclusivity. And then God desires complete devotion. Verses 18 through 28. Here we have a a summary of sample laws that show that the covenant is being renewed, many of which he's already said before in the Ten Commandments. And then in verses 29 through 35, God shows His acceptance of their repentance through the clearest expression of His presence. And it was that Moses' face shined. Verse 29, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai that he did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Moses had to wear a veil over his face when he came from speaking with God. Here's a clear indication, Israel, that God has not abandoned us. God is with us. A couple of things I wanted to explore in conclusion today. We don't have time, but let me just encourage you to write down this passage. Second <clears throat> Corinthians three, seven to eighteen. Second Corinthians three, seven to eighteen. We can be closer to God than Israel. You realize that we don't come to God through a fallen human mediator. 
We go to God through God the Son. We go directly to God in that way. And so we are, in that sense, God's mediator. We are God's priests. And that's what 2 Corinthians 3, 7-18 is about, that we radiate the glory of God, not with radiating faces, but with our lives being changed, that we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next. Read and meditate on that passage, 2 Corinthians 3, 7-18. And then, secondly, praise God for His mercy. You know, God had every right to destroy Israel for breaching the covenant because they had committed flagrant idolatry. But instead, look at chapter 34, verse 6. This is the kind of God we serve. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Aren't you thankful that God did not treat you as your sins deserved? God did not treat you as your rebellion deserved. But instead, He was slow to anger, compassionate, long-suffering, abounding in loving kindness, wanting to show love to you and to your future generations. You realize that the same way to restoration that Israel had is the same way that we have, and that is to draw near to God, James 4.8, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. He is a God of mercy, and He wants to forgive you. Let's pray. Father, we have considered some amazing truths this morning. That You are a God of compassion. And that we, through our rebellion, have broken the covenant. We need to be restored to You. Lord, we're thankful that You have not hidden Your face from us. You have made Yourself available so that we can come to You and repent. And through proper mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us, we can be fully restored. And You will be our God and we will be Your people. You will go with us. And You will cause our lives to shine like Moses' face as You change us into the image of our Savior. Lord, change us more even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.